This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity, the only uh, card... Uh, Flora, huh? they, they asked us not to read an ad. Oh. Enjoy the show! <laughs> Tonight on Bullstone. Fourth of July is almost here, and that can only mean one thing. The Pope's annual Mass of St. Anthony, the patron saint of amputations and lost articles. Three podcasters gather archaeological evidence of serpent people that plagued the kingdom of Atlantis. But are they still among us? Are you in a summer foot funk? New science suggests that wearing flip-flops may keep your feet cool and dry. Genetically modified spider venom and sweet corn has led to increased libido among moth species. Crime doesn't... play? We'll tell you how one theater caught a pair of would-be burglars in the act. All these loincloth-clad stories and more tonight on Bullstone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bullstone. I'm Dave Stacco. Hi, 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 hi. I'm David Flora. <laughs> oh, is that the remix hi. of your name? <laughs> Bullstone. <laughs> As you may have noticed, we had a few extra headlines in the mix there, Flora. That's right. Did, did you notice it? I noticed three Please, extra. Flora, tell me you noticed. I, I noticed three extra. Oh, really? That's right. Tell me more. Well, those three came from three different sources. What? But coalesce into one triforce of a kick-ass podcast. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Bullstone, Josh, John, and Luke from the Cromcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey, everybody. <laughs> hey. Thanks for being on. It's a five-way. Uh, it's our first five. Is it our first five way, Dave? Have we had have we had such an audio orgy before? An audio audio orgy? No, orgy. no, we've never just done an audio five way. I mean, five ways, sure. I mean, there was the lost track from the uh, uh, the Milwaukee Paracon. There was the deliberately hidden tracks from our trip to the uh, Indiana uh, Krampus knocked. I mean, oh, five way. I think there was a seven way on that one. There's there's lots of ways. There's there's yeah, five, so many, five there's dollar so many five ways. ways. <laughs> I guess they're the now point six is dollar is that, five ways now, aren't they? Gosh. The, the point is that we're all wearing loincloths now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> How about you guys uh tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and then uh talk about what the Chromecast is and make sure everybody has a has a nice both steam and bowl of of introduction on their plate <laughs> barbarism <laughs> sure Crom. yeah uh, basically we are uh three dudes that like to get on the mics and talk about uh pulp stories uh we originally started with discussions of the original conan the barbarian robert e howard stories and we've kind of branched off down our variety of different roads uh talking about not just robert e howard but a number of different weird fiction uh, authors and their stories. On top of that, we've talked about some movies and some pulp-inspired works of all types. That's kind of our thing. Like We just basically need an excuse to, to get together and hang out on a pretty regular basis. We all you know, have been together and we 
we were we were buddies first and 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 developed the podcast basically as a way to get together and have a little mini book club and, and talk about some fun stuff hell yeah yeah we were looking for for a creative outlet and we actually uh had in mind to do some uh <laughs> films and we had written a couple of short films, uh, uh, scripts for some films. And then we realized, Hey, none of us know yeah, how to hard. film a movie yeah. <laughs> or had any money to do it. <laughs> yeah, that is work. <laughs> Vampire makeup costs money. You, you basically had pen and paper. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's what you could afford. Um, <laughs> and your mind. <laughs> we're big fans of, of genre fiction, of comic books. And we noticed a distinct lack of any podcast representation of Robert E. Howard. So we, uh, we moved in like an invasive species, and we filled that niche. Yeah, like nice. you do. I I filled know. that niche with Chromecast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now we're assembling this uh, Avenger Bullstone from um, four different states right now. Yeah, five of us from Look four at- states. Uh, of course, Dave's out in Iowa, and I'm in Illinois, and um, John's in Nebraska, right. and. Uh, Josh, you and Luke are in our good old Kentucky home. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Recording from Chromecast Towers right here in Lexington, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> a twisted spire. <laughs> I'm in a corn. As, as I just learned tonight, also known as Lex Vegas. Yeah. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed that. Actually, I thought that was pretty great. Nighttime in Lex Vegas. Oh, man. Now, I've got a, I've got a great. Uh, literary Conan question for you okay. that I am, I'm sure you guys have discussed at some point, but I, I, I'm, I'm personally curious the Robert Jordan Conan stories. I mean, I'm not the only tiny little boat that has been dashed to bits on the rocky shores of the wheel of time. Right. So uh, w- w- your opinion of his treatment of Conan? Uh, honestly, so I myself haven't read any of the Robert Jordan Conan stories. Have you guys? I have not. No. <laughs> well, I th- I feel like that's its own statement. Well, <laughs> no. So so Conan, like, there's there's an original core, what, like eighteen or twenty stories? Yeah. That were exclusive. Well, they were written by Howard and uh, were published to varying degrees. But there were a number of unfinished stories, and then there were a number of like non Conan stories that other authors sort of re sort of restructured and and reappropriated and threw Conan in there in place of maybe some other heroic uh uh you know protagonist for the story. So there's there's a variety of different people that have written Conan, like uh Elsprague de Camp and Link Carter and then <clears throat> Robert Jordan. So there's there's a variety of dudes uh that have written Conan uh uh-huh. over the years, but they're I mean we haven't tackled those just yet. We're, you know, maybe we'll get to them at some point. But it, this, those are the apocrypha of Robert E. Howard. It really is. And there's these various yeah. fragments and there's various uh, 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 bits and pieces of all kinds of stories. You know, we've read some some incomplete Solomon Kane stories are coming to mind right now. Right. Uh, and those were kind of cool just to see, like, where the story sort of meanders and where it finishes off. And we have read a handful of stories that have been finished by other folks. But generally... The Howard stories that we've read, we've tried to stick with just the sure. total authored by Howard stories. With and the, would, uh, would you consider the other books written by other authors non-conanical? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. We did. 
Oh, there you go. That's for free. You guys take that. <laughs> there, yeah, there is no camps. burning of puns and bullstone. <laughs> That's right. It's just we a big wait. bonfire the f- from front to back. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I was I'm always really curious about that because I mean having slogged through all of Robert Jordan's books because once you start why not? I was curious as to what it would be like to read him writing in a different setting and uh, not enough much like yourselves not curious enough to ever go out and do that. My understanding is that the the Robert Jordan Conan stories are amongst the better non Robert E Howard Conan stories. So take that for what it's worth. Um, the other non Howard Conan stories are generally not very good. So you know your your mileage may vary. I did not make it through the Wheel of Time, so you, sir, are a better man than me. Now, for uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the. Um Conan mythology and you know Robert E. Howard's works and stuff. The name of your podcast, Cromcast, comes from Crom. Comcast <laughs> comes from Comcast. Yeah. You're leasing. And more it. recently, the Google Chromecast. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Which the computer will try to make you look at if oh, you yeah. search for Cromcast. <laughs> yeah. Good luck googling. Uh, meta- yeah. You meant Chromecast, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but that's uh, uh, the God, right? Right, yeah. So, so Crom is uh, Howard's, I guess, like largely uh, Norse, northern inspired deity who's largely uncaring about the the overall outlooks and desires of man. He 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 really is more concerned with men and women just uh, making their way through life with, with a stout heart and a stout back and just more or less getting things done. And not needing to be like they need to be self sufficient, right? So it's it's very much a a hands off uh, uh, sort of deity that that looks down on you know from his mountain and and smiles upon those folks that just sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and and get it done. He dwells on a great mountain. He's kind of an atheist's god, and that may seem contradictory, but uh, to to read Conan's description of Krom. It's it's very much as Luke described. He he gives you all the tools you need at birth, and if you need more, well, he he doesn't really favor that, and he won't look out for you. Yeah, tough luck. Better make it work. Right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like that though. I I like the idea of like uh of like that 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 semi present God that's just like you know just just don't be a sissy ass about it. <laughs> that's that's pretty much it. You know. So so Howard wrote some some anti heroic stories and he wrote some some straight up heroic stories but regardless like a lot of the a lot of the characters that he wrote about those men and women they just get it done and and so there's a lot of uh clint eastwood the man in black Mm. or 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 what's what's the right word like uh the man with no name, not the man in black. It's Johnny Cash. That's a different. That's a different fantasy. That's, that's another badass. <laughs> I hear he fled across the desert. He did, and the guns right. followed. But and you know, Conan followed by Crom. <laughs> I like it. That's that right there. That's fan fiction. We're we're writing it right that's now. Right. <laughs> yeah, crossover. But he's you know just so many different characters. In the Howard stories are just are just fun and and, and kick ass and a great way to spend you know thirty fifty a hundred pages of a story. So there, there's a lot there. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you guys recently uh, took on Dashiell Hammett 
uh, in, mm-hmm. one, in one of your uh, more recent episodes. And kind of, I was w- glad we were able to land on Dashle as the official pronunciation, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> you guys did a lot of work for us in that part. And so thank you. There was, there was before the recording started. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Kryptonian? Is he Dashy L? <laughs> no, it's Dash. <laughs> Yeah, so so that was a, a really cool breakdown of um, the book. Yeah, it's a brother's keeper, right? Yeah, that his, was the story. His brother's yeah, keeper. So that story, that story is pretty cool. And we've watched uh, what's the name of the movie that we watched more recently? Uh, the setup. The is setup. that right? Yeah. Setup. Is that right, John? Yeah. yeah. The yeah. setup. A handful of different uh, stories more recently have focused on sort of the the industry of boxing, I think it's fair to say. And, and just sort of like beyond just the guy in the ring, like who are the other people that tend to be involved in that sport? And so, so John put together uh, a series of stories that we've been reading for this season that have been focused on, on uh, Howard's boxing, but we've tried to pull in a variety of other, you know, materials related to boxing. And one of those was that, was that Hammett story. Yeah. To build the drawbridge between, uh, Conan and what we're talking about now Robert E. Howard was a big boxing fan and he had a huge boxing canon that he wrote he was really a, a, a character named Sailor Steve Costigan that he, he put a lot of stories out about so that's what our season currently is dedicated to very cool that's awesome I'm glad that he included the last name Costigan because if you just had Sailor Steve eh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to follow that's a different kind of story <laughs> it was originally Sailor Steve Fisticuff, but it turns out that was taken. So he was like, I, I would read his his story too. <laughs> and then um, the other uh, kind of side of your uh, podcast, or at least your feed, you do bourbon, bourbon and barbarians. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. That was kind of just a, like a, a lark. That yeah. that was a yeah. bourbon soaked pipe dream that came to reality. <laughs> well, as the best pipe dreams do, right? <laughs> We were just like, hey, I, you know, so so Josh and I have played uh, a variety of RPGs together over the years, like from grad school onward. And so we were kind of feeling the itch. And John <laughs> had never played any Dungeons and Dragons or, or RPGs oh. before. So this was kind of a way to, to get into that. And so since then, we've also pulled in our buddy Mike, who is another another friend of, of, uh, of John's initially that they, they went to grad school together. But So at this point, we have four people that are playing uh, the game and we're playing the, the basic expert, like old school, early 80s rules of Dungeons and Dragons. I guess nice. k- oh, kind of loosely. Nice. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because Krom gave us our natural abilities and yeah. now he doesn't care. And neither <laughs> does, <laughs> his job is done. Neither neither does basic Dungeons and Dragons. It just, is unforgiving. <laughs> that like first edition, not not even like not even first edition. Yeah, so this is what you might call like the Beckme or the basic expert uh, uh rule system. So it's nice. it is like it, yeah, it's even more stripped down than AD&D first edition. Uh, uh, but right now we're playing uh, the Keep on the Borderlands module, which is like the classic starter outer uh, dungeon crawl. You're you're roving out away from the outpost and you're going and killing monsters. So the the module doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you're kind of in this <laughs> this situation. You're like in a holler where there's uh, probably fifteen or twenty different caves, and each cave has a different type of monster. So you run into kobolds in one cave, and the next cave over it's goblins. So it's it doesn't make sense, but <laughs> Fun nonetheless, and it's a great way to just sort of like go through the hoop. So, so we're doing that. We're actually uh, like this recording. We're probably in the last session or so of 
of of that current campaign, and we'll knock it out here pretty quick. Uh, but it's been fun, and I think we're going to keep doing it, and we'll jump into some some other sort of modules that are that are pretty well known, and and we'll see where we go. I think we'll continue to play within the D and D framework. But yeah, I'm excited to, to see to to hear what happens with the hand in the eye. Oh, 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 oh crap. You, you've been listening. <laughs> I didn't expect anyone. I didn't expect anyone to listen to that. Shit. Oh man. It's so weird. Cause this, yeah. it really was. I said, Lark, like that's what it was. Like we just sort of, uh, we were getting together on Skype anyway. So we just went ahead and hit record just like we normally do for the Chromecast. Sure. Yeah. And it's content. And so there's editing, but it's, it's a rougher level of editing than what we normally do, but it's, it's <laughs> at least pass through to try to remove out the the flipping through the pages you know to find rules and that kind of thing oh, yeah. wearing <laughs> <laughs> people have been have been into it which is surprising but it's super cool so if if people are having fun with it that 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 tickles me yeah that's yeah. it's it's pretty cool and so when we get to the end of this module uh our intention is to drop the whole thing all at once onto a separate feed so yeah. if if people are into the RPG side of the feed, then they don't have to dig through the back episodes to find it. Yeah. I think people will get a kick out of like the fact that we're playing through the B2 module, that classic sort of keep on the borderlands module that, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not exclusive. It's not just, just the B2 module, but at least it's a touchstone for people to, yeah. to, to get into. So, I think and a fair amount of, I imagine like uh, familiarity and some um, nostalgia as well. Yeah, right. Like we, we came across the owlbear, which my understanding is that just wrecks everybody's campaigns, <laughs> like just through and through in, in total fashion like that. And the, the troll were definitely uh, monkey wrenches that were thrown at the group. So, so it's, <laughs> it's fun. I, I, I've never been like a straight up hardcore DM before. I've done a couple other like shorter campaigns with our group, uh, so this is kind of my first foray into like into doing that myself. But I mean, uh, John and Mike, who we've who Josh and I have never gained before, gamed with before, have been. I think I I, I think everybody's having fun. <laughs> I just wish that people could see the murderous glint in his eye at the beginning <laughs> yeah. of every session. I had to shield my shield my eyes. Yeah. He he <laughs> wants to kill us. That's his goal. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Flora, Flora and I were playing in a D&D game about two years ago at the UIC Robotics Lab every Wednesday. We had some friends that, that were uh, doing work over there. And awesome. so we would go over to the, the campus every Wednesday night and, and, and roll. And I, you guys passed uh, my RPG test, which was just to roll a D20 on a countertop and see if you guys <laughs> like instantly pounced on it. So, yeah, you, you passed. You guys are legit. <laughs> I thought it was a created woodpecker. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just it's a D twenty carved out of that woodpecker oh. skull. So stop. You're both. Right. <laughs> Shall we, so uh, we? uh Yeah. Let's get some. Let's get some headlines going here. Yeah. We always like to let the guests go first, so you guys Absolutely. can fight amongst yourself for who's got the first story. Fearless leader, you're first. These are weird, weird stories that came out of uh, the headlines in June. Oh, okay. So I have I have a story here. This is the headline from Science Daily. 
promiscuous salamander found to use the genes from three partners equally. So this is a sexy story to start things out. Six to midnight. <laughs> so this this is a cool this is a cool story. Uh, basically, the the paper that the the headline is based on is from uh, Genome Biological Evolution, which is a, a scientific journal, and the the title of the paper is Genome Expression Balance in a Triploid Trihybrid Vertebrate. And basically, what it gets down to, there's a handful of different mole salamanders that all <laughs> sort of do their thing with with one another, and the the females within various populations can mate with various males and mix and match the DNA, and and so you can end up with a with a with is it a thruple with with a with a mix of of three different individuals' DNA in the offspring, and it's just it's cool. I mean, yeah, my three dads. <laughs> sex. It's just really fascinating to think about all of these different ways. Like it's. You know, sexual reproduction is is widespread across plants and animals of all types, but the fact that it doesn't always have to play out the way that we tend to think that it does is just fascinating. And and so I found this paper for tonight too, and and uh, I found it in Popular Science, and it it sounds like the the females can uh, pick and choose which right. genes to to pass on to their offspring, and do so at multiple different intervals post mating, which is unheard of. Yeah. I, how would, how did, what is how the mechanism? No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not know. for sure how salamanders do it. You know, within insects, there's a variety of different ways that like sperm can compete. And so females can sort of pick and choose between individual males that they've mated with, but the ability to sort of pull DNA from a couple different uh, partners is, is really fantastic. Well, and also, if you think like, you know, learning how that mechanism works, if you take, say, for example, endangered species that are that fall below that population threshold for genetic diversity, that's a good way of shuffling that deck a little bit, maybe giving them a little bit better shot going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. What this reminded me of was actually a science fiction movie from the 90s called Species. Um and I don't know if you guys recall that movie. Uh, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody saw Species. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it reminded me of this paper. Or this paper reminded me of it. Huh. I just I heard I, the I judgment must... in that. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I'm legitimate. I'm on this one. I watched Species a number of times. <laughs> I it, Yeah, I'm just, I'm just left trying to figure out how... Uh, a creature would choose what DNA they want to use. Yeah, and that's and that's what's what's weird. And I wonder if I wonder if that's phrased in the like the way that they using that sentence structure is the way we're understanding it, mm. because it makes it seem like the the female salander, salamander is actively selecting for individual genetic traits, where it could just be that autonomically the female salander's genome is selecting compatible sections. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if, if the way they're describing it is the way I'm hearing it. Cause I'm with you, Flora, like how on earth does a salamander know which section of DNA it wants? Or is it like it chooses when to um, even fertilize, maybe, maybe a step beyond like ovulate, yeah. you know, or something, but like, choose selective, like when, incorporation. Yeah. Of like, okay. I feel like fertilizing. I, I don't know. Well, so 
five dollar three. Again, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not familiar with with how this sort of uh, multiploidy sort of system plays out. But but sperm competition, just generally, it's the kind of thing where males, if they are sort of the the initiators and the the ones that can prolong copulation, can ensure or at least increase the chances that their uh, gametes are passed on. So, like, you can get a situation where if copulation is prolonged for a given period of time. Or if you can, you know, do do something clever, like insert sort of a sperm plug, like some sort of uh, uh, cement that, that that keeps copulation from happening in the future, you can ensure that your own uh, genetic material is passed on. So in, in the male context, that's how they can sort of uh, hedge their, you know, ensure that they're that they're gonna get some some of their own genetic material passing on. In the, in the case of females, though, you know, they have a lot of choice. There's oftentimes, at least in insects, and I know, I know you know about this, Dave. Like, th- th- there's a variety of, of ways that you can sort of store sperm over time. Yeah. And and insects, I mean, they do that kind of thing. Like, it's right. it's cool that there's these reservoirs, there's these spermatheca that, that insects can just sort of pick and choose what material they want to use. Yeah. Uh, queen honeybees do it right. like that. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, there's like 16 different good punk band names in this discussion and currently <laughs> sperm plugs leading the list. Uh, but you know, with, with some insects like uh, dragonflies, when, when dragonflies mate, the, the male kind of grabs the female by the back of the neck and then the female brings her abdomen forward and they form this heart shaped kind of wheel like yeah. position. Right. And uh, the male holds on until long after they've, finished mating but in amphibians and and in these uh salamanders specifically the male drops uh, a packet of sperm right and the female picks it up right and and uh then is able to use it to fertilize eggs and so my understanding of this was that the female could pick up multiple sperm packets from different males and right. and then use traits from different males. So they're really tr- like in an evolutionary sense, there is some level of picking and choosing that's at play here. Right. I said use trait, but use genes. Yeah. For, yeah. Which is amazing. So maybe I there's a mechanism amazing. that, that the female can see what there is on, on display. Maybe there's, you know, like honey, I'm going down to the store. I'm going to get like, bigger webbed feet and and a longer tail they just right. know yeah they six know. pack of smokes or, or maybe Wait, they no like a- beers <laughs> it's not how they sell it's not how they you can tell how much i've ever smoked in my life i, I need a six pack of cigarettes baby <laughs> that's, that's how you get them right <laughs> that's pretty cool though so yeah the sexy times that was <laughs> that was what was on your mind that was it dave you're thinking of salem manders <laughs> oh, I get it now. Yeah, just throw them all on the bonfire. I love <laughs> puns into Bullstone tonight. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it never stops. <laughs> yeah, the paper is also sort of written as a vehicle for uh, like a high throughput sort of molecular, like a pipeline for, for processing data, you know, which uh-huh. is growing and growing and growing. So it's it's clearly a paper that will be cited much into the future in terms of how people will process these types of data. And, and uh, I remembered what I was going to say earlier. It, it sounds like the salamander has some, uh, the female salamander has some mechanism that's very similar to CRISPR uh, already built in. Right. And so that's what I was thinking. she's able to clip out sections yeah. of, of different uh, genomes, right. Different uh, uh, sections of genes and just like string those together to, to form the perfect salamander. 
eat uh, salamanders. Like, there's laser beam salamanders and flying ones, a couple of airbenders thrown in for the hell of it. Charmanders. The problem is the airbenders <laughs> all die. They dry out. They, they, they can't control their powers. And they, yeah, that it's, is, that it's is tragic. That is fortunate trait to pick if you're a salamander. <laughs> and then somebody thought it would be good to have a Jubilee salamander. <laughs> somebody always does. <laughs> Shut up. Jubilee's awesome. <laughs> all right. Who's, who's next? Yeah. John, you go. You want me to go? Do it, John. I, d- I didn't go science. I went, uh, I guess, archaeology is sort of what I went with. Sweet. It was, uh, you may have seen in the news today that in Argentina, a huge collection of Nazi artifacts was discovered inside of a secret room. <laughs> yes, what? federal police in Argentina recently discovered in a house in Buenos Aires roughly 75 Nazi artifacts, including everything from a large knife to Nazi medical devices, to a photo negative of Adolf Hitler. Police are investigating when and how the items entered into the South American country. Argentina is famous, of course, because they are the country that Mengele and I think Eichmann were the the two that fled there. And Eichmann got caught in Buenos Aires and was transported to Israel and hung in the 60s, where I think Mengele, he... He escaped and ended up dying in Brazil at some point. And there's some people who are postulating that these are Mengele's or Eichmann's stuff that they hid in Argentina and they never got a chance to go back for. And they know that they're authentic authentic because they're with a lot of the different objects, there are pictures of the Nazis holding them in the 30s. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. It's some real interesting looking stuff. Uh, you know, medical things that would be Mingala, but the knife is something, it looks like something you would hand to people who are kind of high ranking. There's also a collection of Nazi toys that would have been given to Nazi youth. Particularly of note is the collection of harmonicas that has a bunch of little kids uh, drawn onto them and a bunch of swastikas and thunderbolts and such. So kind of interesting stuff to discover on your own, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at I, I'm looking at these pictures. I, I pulled that up while you're talking about it. It is fascinating. And some wow. of these things are not like small. There's like a a marble like plinth with a, a silver Nazi eagle on it. Like who who was like, we gotta get out of here. Wait, hit, wait not without yeah, this. Yeah. It, it was like it's like the jerk, but with a Nazi. <laughs> oh, I need this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, would you like me to check your bag? No, no, <laughs> nine, nine, <laughs> nine, nine. I mean, no. nine. I got to hold on to this. But yeah, I thought wow. it sounded like the beginnings of National Treasure 3. Nicholas Cage's new movie, perhaps, is going to start off with this. Story. Yeah. And what I'm curious about is that I'm just trying to scan this really quickly. So they found it behind a, a, a fake wall in a home, but like where the people, did the people find it? And we're like, whoa. Or, you know, that's what I can't find either is who found it and how did they report it to the police? Yeah, because it right. the way it kind of scans right. is that it's like the result of a uh, an investigation somehow. So he, this is the one thing that I found. It says agents from Interpol raided the home of an unnamed owner of a house on June 8th. Some artworks of illicit origin, quote, were discovered on the north side of Buenos Aires leading police to the man's home. When investigators arrived, they found a large bookcase that was hiding a secret room. The man still remains free, but it's unclear if he will face any charges. 
So there's some blanks there for me. Like, yeah, do you just jiggle around a bookcase and oh, look, a Scooby Doo hidden room or what? I, I don't, I yeah. don't know. I was, I was kind of hoping it would be somebody just sitting around every night, being like, "Man, where's that draft coming from?" <laughs> I think it was and the end. It's like I, I can't get these scratches out of the floor <laughs> that are in kind of this arc pattern. Ah, oh. <laughs> my leader for, for years. <laughs> if you're an investigator and you find the hidden bookcase secret room behind it, retire. Yeah. Retire. Yeah. It's never gonna get yeah. better than that moment. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> and hope you don't get hit by the inevitable poison dart that's gonna come flying <laughs> your neck from inside that room that you just opened. Yeah, there's always right. the idiot rookie who runs in and gets <laughs> Nazi darted in the face or something. Yeah. The uh, the Alfred Molina of the group. Yeah. Who like <laughs> knocks everybody over and grabs the Nazi stuff and I want to find some Nazi gold. I, I don't know why. Well, I mean, it's still gold. I just, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, with swastikas and things. Yeah. <laughs> you can melt it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you, I mean, you, you could can make it into flying spaghetti monster gold. Now now it's religious. Right? <laughs> now they can't touch it. You could put the Goatman on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Goatman gold. Gold. Which is the name of our new beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's light and cool. Yeah. And perfect for summer. Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's glorious! That's a that's an awesome one, John. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. I'm gonna yeah, Mine I'm gonna is- dig more into that because like just I I think that kind of stuff's fascinating. That like this much time can pass, but there are still weird little hordes of things, you know. Absolutely. And like the fact that all of that had to travel as far as it did, and it's such seemingly random stuff. Like who would think? Hey, when I get to Argentina, I'm gonna be so glad I have this box of children's harmonicas. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's kind of different than like the Amber Room or some of the other Nazi yeah. treasures that are still out there, I think. But uh, the Nazis seem to have left behind a lot of these treasure troves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they had to fund their uprising or at least their moon base. Right. The Hydra operations of the future. Those moon bases and hollow earth bases are really expensive. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You have to squirrel away a lot of cash. Iron exactly. Sky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a great, terrible movie. I love yeah. that. Remember, they've been talking about the, the Nazi gold train. Yeah, the Polish gold tunnel or whatever. Yeah, and and what I think what I think I remember is that there was a talk of them, they found it, and then they were like, No, actually it's a hoax. Or they didn't find it. They were just trying to get money to, to like excavate it, but then then I heard it was back on. Oh, well, maybe there is a, a train. I, so, I don't know. I, at this point, I think everybody's kind of like, no, no Nazi gold train. This, <laughs> there's too much back and forth, so it's fake. Well, would you but tell anybody if you found the Nazi gold train? <sighs> you, it'd take a long time to get that thing out of there, I think. Somebody would see you, so. <laughs> have, As have I look that somebody. up, I, I don't see there is no updates past october 2016 on that and all the stories were that they didn't they didn't find the gold train but they think that there might actually still be not necessarily like a bunch of gold but like a lot of like nazi architecture hidden further in there they think it may have been like a secret bunker in there yeah so but but given the fact that no one has said anything for you know eight months i i suspect strongly that there's not much there yeah, it's just it's funny to have something like that where they're like, uh, "Yeah, there's there's definitely a, like a gold hoard here. Let's go find it." And then 
that doesn't turn up anything, but then in Buenos Aires, they're like, hey, move to bookcase, all this Nazi junk. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, well, the Argentinian right. one wasn't guarded by a Nazi gold golem that, that killed all of the hunters. Oh. Oh, no, they would never have that. <laughs> no way. That's the last thing they'd have. It, it's, it, it would be like a steam machine. That's true. Some Something inhumane and... Some yeah, sort of Nordic anyway. magic. Anyway, so yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they've got the that that Thule power in there. <laughs> uh, sorry, Josh. You no, can, no, that's you, fine. You can go ahead with yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, what I found was a story. This is a story about trees and their movement westward. Um, and this is research that was conducted at Purdue University. Spoiler up. <laughs> the alma mater of one of our Chromecasters. Boilermakers. Boilermakers. Choo-choo. <laughs> Here's what happened. Over the last 30 years, um, the U.S. Forest Service has kept tabs of these various uh, forest plots around the, the eastern U.S. And every year or every couple years, they go to these plots, they see what trees are there, and they catalog them, uh, make some graduate student do this right, uh, or some undergraduate intern, and then they take that data and they sort of shove it into a filing cabinet. Well, what Purdue researcher Song Lin Fei found uh, after looking at this 30-year massive data set of forest stand dynamics in the eastern U.S. is that uh, trees are actually migrating uh, westward at a rate of... About uh, nine and a half miles per decade, which is really screaming for a tree. Yeah, that's pretty good. That is is really booking it. Almost a mile a year, almost. They're going to personal best on this marathon. (laughs) And so immediately what you think is that this is due to uh, climate change, which which I know we all know that's a a liberal. (laughs) (laughs) That was invented by Diana. I'm a man. (laughs) I'm full of blood. And I'm coming. I've already migrated west. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so uh, what uh, Professor Fay found was that uh, about 86 tree species have uh, changed re- uh, uh, their um, the core of their ranges. And most of those trees have moved westward. And there's no one factor that they can pin this on. Um, temperatures have increased in the east. Precipitation has uh, increased in the West. So maybe that's one factor that has uh, contributed to this movement of trees from the, the Eastern part of the United States westward. Um, but what you would expect is that uh, in, in response to climate change, if that were the trigger for this movement of trees is that the trees would move sort of northward, right? Right. right. And, and sort of follow those cooler climates, the, the, the climates that they are more used to. But that's not what uh, Dr. Faye is actually finding. So, King, uh, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but do you have, does the article mention like what tree species they looked at specifically? It does, and I have that, and if you will give me a moment, I can pull that up. Please do. It's on my phone. Like you said, it um, seems like they would go up, not west, because they're talking about like 120 degrees in the southwest this week. Yeah. That that should be just like a stifling 
fucking wall <laughs> right? that, that the tree runs into, you know? Not to mention the mountains where it's cold. Is it uh, is it basically east of the Mississippi? Is it like eastern North America before uh, the Great Plains? We, I think the furthest west that they sampled was Missouri. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that's a pretty good barrier, the Great Plains. Yeah. Um, and so I have that list of trees here now, and... Um, I mean, 83 species, right? Uh, okay. we're, we're talking about, uh, um, let's get to the deciduous trees here. Uh, sassafras, right. uh, tulip poplar, various species of oak, some so ashes. It, yeah, so so a variety a mix, yeah. of, of broadleaf deciduous trees. So that's, I mean, because the, the problem that, that you can see with a lot of these movements is it's a squeeze, right? Because you keep going west, but then you hit like plains and, and the hot temperatures like what you guys were talking about, and you can't really go any further. Uh, like that's that's the squeeze, right? So it's that's that's a that's a bad predicament. But it's counter to what you would think, right? With even just like uh, general climate patterns, you would think like eastern distributions would would move further east, right? Right. Yeah. Um. And so you know, trees have moved around uh throughout history, and and there's a great paper from uh 1984. This is written by a lady named Margaret Davis. Uh, and, um, I don't have the title, but it's about deciduous trees migrating in response to changing climates, uh, prior to the last glacial maximum. So starting about 80,000 years ago right. and, uh, uh, up until about 11 or 12,000 years ago, uh, trees shifted downwards from, uh, Canada, uh, into new England and down South through the Appalachian mountains. And, uh, at the period when the, the Laurentide glacier was at its peak, so the ice sheet that covered the, ma- the majority of North America right. during the last ice age, um, the, the deciduous trees were all kind of found around the Gulf of Mexico and in Kentucky and, and um, Tennessee, you would find uh, more tundra species, right? Right, right. So, so trees do move and you would expect them to move kind of on this north-south gradient, but that's not what these researchers from Purdue are finding. And uh, a mile a year, basically, too. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's really booking it. That's awesome. Pretty strange and pretty weird. Yeah, the ints are on the move and they move very slowly and they don't get hasty. Jeez. <laughs> Our room. <laughs> Maybe they're moving to Isengard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. <laughs> They're they're doing a moot in Texas. <laughs> Nobody moots in Texas. <laughs> oh, people do moot in Texas, and when they moot there, they eat nothing but barbecue, right, John? True. And then they never have a bowel movement. I thought it'd be in Mootana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't moot with Texas. <laughs> yeah, that would be the best dumb shirt on earth. <laughs> don't don't moot, moot with, with Texas. <laughs> awesome, Flora. What do you got? All right, uh, I have. This one, man, it it's cool, but you have to kind of kind of like nature and destruction for it. I don't know. I don't know if anybody uh, will go for that. But uh, this is coming from I fucking love science. Has the eighth wonder of the world been found again after being lost for one hundred thirty-one years? So in eighteen eighty-six in New Zealand. There was a huge volcanic eruption uh, at Lake Rotomahana on the North Island, and people aren't sure exactly how it became so powerful, but there was a chain reaction of massive explosions uh, and lava that, that came out in the middle of a lake, 
And they said that it's estimated it released as much energy as the Tsar Bomba, oh. which is the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated. Right. Oh. Now, the one problem with this is that not only did it just everything up around there and kill a lot of like maori and and you know people who were living near there they they everybody said it destroyed a really beautiful formation that was there called the pink and white terraces these were rocks that were formed by slow accumulation of silica rich deposits from um geothermal springs and they'd been there forever and some people called them the eighth wonder of the world. I don't think they were officially on any world wonder list. And I've got, I've got lists of the world wonders. Just <laughs> and so I've you got know, lists. So don't you think they, for one second? <laughs> there's a there's a world wonder list list for just about every stupid ass thing. <laughs> but um, everybody thought that this eruption destroyed them, and some people have have like sought them out to see if if in fact they were still there or if they had, you know, been just completely demolished. Uh, if there's any anything to to find, and apparently there was a 19th century geologist geologist called Dr. Ferdinand von Hochstetter, yeah, uh, who did a did a lot of uh, did, did a lot of work on it and wrote a bunch of field notes. Didn't actually make a map, but this pair of researchers, this research librarian and a historian, decided they wanted to try to find this through the works of von Hochstetter. And um, I guess it says they mathematically narrowed down where he was standing when he described the terraces. Uh, and it, now he he described them before the eruption, and so that's where people, mm-hmm. that's where these guys like started their their search. They're like, okay, where where were they, so that we can then search for where if they're still there or if they got you know like thrown yeah. somewhere, you know, right. pieces of it. And according to their analysis, it says the terraces were split into three parts and were not found in Lake Rotomahana, but elsewhere near other geo the geothermal springs. And they, they think that the uh, descriptions back in the 19th century were quote, somewhat fanciful and not particularly accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and so they think, they think they have it down to 35 meters. They have where it, it was located. That's pretty legit. Yeah. And they, they want the, uh, I guess geologists around there to uh, initiate an expedition to confirm if they're right. So they obviously it's, it's kind of clickbaity in that they haven't actually found anything, but they think they've got it just based on uh, the previous work of Hochstetter. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take that (laughs) any, any opportunity to say his name. Right. And then uh, back in 2011, some ge- geologists were exploring the bottom of the lake there, and they had found massive fragments of the pink terraces. There was a pink terrace and a white terrace. terrace. And what they decided, or what they concluded, is that they weren't destroyed. They were just severely blown to hell and back. <laughs> <laughs> right? They were only they were still mostly <laughs> dead. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and, and then after the uh, eruption happened, um, all the lake like rushed back in to fill it up and then rains filled up even more. And so that's why nobody 
you know, everybody thought they were completely destroyed. They they couldn't see them. That's awesome. But here's the, here's the but. Guys, hold on. There's a but. Hold on for that but. Uh, five years later, this would be 20, uh, 2016. Same, same people looked at sonar surveys and suggested that their previous thought was wrong. And they thought that it was the explosion was enough to take out the terrace. So they're kind of uh, like at a at a standstill. These these guys recently think that it might they might be looking in the wrong place. These geologists from uh, last year think that they they had it wrong to begin with, and it was destroyed. So <laughs> <laughs> they said the fragment that they found might have slid down the main Rotomahana crater wall and rested on a ledge for 125 years before being fortuitously found by a submersible. The, these guys think they're in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Using an automobile. Right. So, yeah, d- the jury's out, but, uh, yeah, the, this this new pair of um, probably bemustached uh, gentlemen... <laughs> And they can get their pith helmets off. Right. Think that we should take our submersible to a different lake and, and look around there. With all haste. So I don't, do I don't it know. for the queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forthwith. Yes, 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 of course. Bully, bully, bully. <laughs> I think that's awesome, though, that the idea that this thing that they thought just got blown to shit and back could still just be there, just buried. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, buried or, or just a um, big chunk taken out of it. I just wonder how you would actually like ground truth it and end up proving it like 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 finding the the hard evidence for this though. I mean, man, it would be tough cuz it would have to be buried somewhere and you right. know, you'd have to, and most likely in a lake. Yeah, you just have to and convince that, people there's the gold worst. or diamonds in there. Nazi gold <laughs> Nazi down there. Gold. Nazi gold. Yeah, Nazi. full circle. <laughs> <laughs> I looked on lists of wonders of the world. Of course, they're saying it's the eighth wonder, which you say when you have something that is to be added to the already established list of wonders of the world. That was Andre the Giant. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's it's already established. (laughs) Hochstetter. Yeah. So there you go. I dig that. Dave, is it is it has it come around to you? It has, it has, and I've got I've got some great. Uh, this is some of my favorite weird news in the world. It's uh, a mixture of particle physics and poop, boobs. Oh, yeah, it was close second, close second. Uh, <laughs> Got to get out my pen and paper. Not in my book. <laughs> <laughs> my pervert, my lady. <laughs> Oh, they make a stool for that. <laughs> Speaking of stools, um, there is this really interesting piece of science that's going on right now where um, scientists who are actually studying fossilized crap or corporalites, you know, it's people can, you can find fossilized poop. And aside from being like, Haha, knock, knock, it's a dookie, <laughs> not much you can do with it. However, They've actually been using particle accelerators to uh, to image the inside of these these ancient ancient stink logs, and the here's this is the best part of the whole thing. The technique that they use is called propagation phase contrast synchrotron microtomography. You can say that again, right? <laughs> 
There's a punk band name. Sorry, sperm plug. Move down the list. We got our new punk band name already. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, Dave. What, yeah. What's the acronym for that? Uh, that would be PPC. <laughs> it's, already, <laughs> it's already working. <laughs> PPCSM. Uh, PPC? So the... Uh, what matters is that they just bombard this thing with particles and uh, with x-rays. And as they hit things inside, uh, inside the fossilized poop, they diffract and they can actually analyze the pattern, which they diffract and create three dimensional uh, images of what's inside this fossilized shite. And so uh, it's amazing. Like some of the pictures that they have in one case, let's see here. They've parts of fish, pieces of uh, of insects. Like they are really clear. Uh, the hardened shell carapace on the back of a beetle. The two pieces are called the elytra, and they've got this really great image of these two elytra and also some leg segments of a chewed up bug. But the hard thing that they're the, the the hardest thing for them to figure out now is they can learn everything they need to about what's in the poop. Like, oh, what was being eaten? They can get these cool images of it. But the hard thing is to identify uh, what done dealt it. <laughs> oh wow! It's probably from whoever's running the particle accelerator, right? <laughs> yeah, he's eating some bugs. If you're gonna whoever, eat, yeah, whoever s- scanned it manned it right <laughs> that's that's exactly how it works but you know you can you can identify uh a good number of critters from from little particles within poop though there's there's a there's a treasure trove of information especially with anything that has an exoskeleton like that yeah there might be some uh, uh science papers written about this type it, of thing is it isn't there isn't there a thesis written about this Luke? <laughs> So I've I've researched. This Are you kind a of poop thing. doctor? I well part of part of what I what I get into as far as my research is looking at bat diets, and so uh, we can we, you can dissect poop just under under uh, magnification, you know, and tease it apart with eth- ethanol and and get a sense of what types of critters are being consumed, and you know, with with more recent samples, you can extract DNA from those from those those poop samples, and this is just the next the next cool ass logical step with it right i thought yeah. you guys were a pulp podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so yeah so you know exactly the kind of thing like they're they're learning from this and yeah. the hard thing is is that they just it's hard for them to contextualize right you know, i mean you have to have an inf- you have to have an information basis of what kind of critters were alive at that point in right. time like what's the diversity of, of of fauna and what was found where and you know just because you know that they eat beetle species one, two, and three, and then these other moths, like what does that mean in the context of what was available, and what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and with these coprolites, you're not going to be able to extract any DNA, right? Like they're they're fossils, right? So. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's it's just fascinating that they can get these images out of it, but then you're like, <laughs> there's like we've we've talked about this before, like. I mean, can you try to judge the size of the creature by the size of the deuce? I mean, you don't know how <laughs> big a lystrosaur anus was. I mean, these right, guys, yeah. these, you know, you just don't know. These guys could have passed a bowling ball. You would never know. Yeah, you can, you can get an indication of some size of the prey, right, according to, like, bits and pieces, you know, representing the whole. But, but it's hard to get an idea of, 
of how many critters equal you know right some some level of energy that they're that they're consuming and mm-hmm. just getting an idea for, for I guess really like what was out there on the landscape for them to be eating. I mean, really, it sounds like they need paleo entomologists to be looking at these poop samples. Right. Yeah. If, yeah. If had a, a full leg, like an unbroken leg, they could, yeah. they could take ratios of, of the different leg segments and figure out the size of the, the prey item. Right. And then from that, maybe you can infer the size of, of the organism that ate it. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. Because big, or how it was eaten. Yeah. Yeah. The big predators might eat small prey items, but you know, you could get some information. Yeah. 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 A Tyrannosaurus uh, sleeping will inhale like 12 spiders a year. So. <laughs> That's what I heard. There's always at least one at least a foot away. Oh, <laughs> my living nightmare. Dave, does it say where that where that's at? Where the uh, where they're doing the research? Yeah. Uh, let's see here. So one of the researchers is uh, from the University of Toronto. Mississauga. Um, there's a, a, a NYU professor working on it as well. And I think what I'm trying to determine here is this is uh, if they're actually using CERN or stock pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. St- I mean, yeah. don't they have better things to do? <laughs> oh, uh, it's the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility <laughs> or the right. ESRF. You know. I just- I was just looking at this too. I pulled it up as you as we were talking about it, and it seems like there's some some European folks in Uppsala, like in Uppsala, Sweden, like that group. That, yeah, more like Poopsala. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> it's poop jokes. That's what we're getting over here. I mean, obviously, these guys are the ones who've opened up the fucking black hole to the dimension, or whatever we're we're living in. You're going to blame them for everything else you don't. It, These guys it, are just it, trying to learn from poop, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We're all trying to learn from poop now. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's an amazing uh, uh, use of technology as far as imaging goes. And um, and yeah, as like more uh, larger corporalites are, are brought in, just imagine what they're going to see in there. I mean, there's going to be some cool stuff to be found in, in that they're dung. <laughs> it's paleoecology, right? Like figuring out what's what's doing what and what the relationships are. What's poo and what? <laughs> That's and, awesome. Yeah. yeah, or even just, I mean, creatures that we considered, I mean, or or even entire classifications that you considered to be uh, strict uh, herbivores or, you know, finding more indications of, of omnivores in an area than you thought you did. I mean, those right. those things seem like small details, but they have huge ramifications and so I, I and there's going to be giant surprises uh, as far as what we thought uh, was the behavior of those creatures, what they thought they were eating versus what they actually are. And you're in you're 100 percent right. Like you can then draw that line to energy inputs and things like that and 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 kind of almost in for activity almost if you really want to draw it out, if you've got a good picture of that, you know, it's it's so much. you. What am I telling you for? You know exactly how much you can learn from studying poop. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Tell me more. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so that's that's my dookie story. You guys got anything else? I do have one. I have another story. Great. Okay. And it's about glowing translucent pickle looking creatures that inundated the uh the Oregon coast. <laughs> <laughs> Oregon pickle creatures. It sounds Lovecraftian. I know it sounds Lovecraftian. <laughs> 
uh, where's DB Spitzer? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so th- this is from uh, KGW uh, from Newport, Oregon. The ocean waters off the Oregon coast are now full of strange-looking creatures called pyrosomes that set off a glow, according to National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration officials. So uh, basically, and I'll send you guys the link uh, so you can include it because there's a visual component to this, but these organisms are called tunicates, and there are different types of tunicates, and the ones that are floating in the ocean off the coast of Oregon are called pyrosomes. And... Uh, a lot of tunicates are um, stationary, sessile little um, creatures that attach to things. Uh, they're not barnacles, but you could think barnacle-like. They're kind of like like cylinders. That are kind of like little hula hoops with with frilly sort of. Yeah, yeah. They're sea squirts, right? There we go. That's yeah. the term. <laughs> yeah. And and they're actually related kind of closely to us because they uh, are chordates, right? So they have a nervous cord. Right. Um, and when they are immature, they look very similar to a tadpole. And they, they're kind of fishy and they have a tail and you can see the, the nerve cord along the dorsal side. But as they uh, become adults, they look very different. Um, and these pyrosomes, instead of attaching to things, are uh, planktonic. So they just drift in the ocean currents. And generally, they are able to some, somewhat control the depth at which they float around. And during the day, they float uh, deeper in the water. And at night, they come up toward the surface. And they're generally more tropical uh, organisms. But uh, this appearance of these things uh, off the coast of Oregon in 2000, they started appearing in 2015 and have uh, reappeared every year uh, the past couple of years. And what that might mean is that ocean waters off the coast of Oregon are warming enough to support this type of organism. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, they look gnarly. They really do look like pickles. Some of them can be about two feet long, uh, which is pretty long for, for a sea pickle. Yeah, yeah. that's a big pickle. Yeah. That's, that's- <laughs> Damn! <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so in this article, uh, uh, some researchers went out there and they, they dropped a net and they towed it for five minutes. Um, and they collected 60,000 of these pyrosomes. Uh, the really cool thing about the pyrosomes though, uh, two things really one, they bioluminesce. So they glow, right. Uh, which is pretty neat. The other thing is, uh, rather than being one single individual organism, they're colonial. And so each little cell that makes up this uh, this colony that looks like the sea pickle is an individual, uh-huh. and so they live in this colonial fashion, and uh, they they look for all intents and purposes like an individual organism, but they're not. Uh, each part of that organism is its own little individual. Each part of the pickle. Each part of the pickle is its own <laughs> individual. Each pickle part. They use every part of the pickle. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, this, these strange Lovecraftian sea pickles are, are swarming the coast of Oregon. And uh, should we be afraid? I don't know. I don't think so. They ain't hurt anybody. Right. But the, the concern, the potential concern is that in numbers this great, if they all were to, for whatever reason, die and sink in the, the more shallow water closer to the shore, uh-huh. it could cause an oxygen deficiency oh, in the water. Maybe they are hurting you. What is called a dead zone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. There's no oxygen there, and everything just exactly, yeah, and it results in fish kills, and and aquatic organisms have a hard time living there because huh, there's no oxygen. Um, 
so yeah, no Christopher Walken. It's just a lack of oxygen in this dead zone. So yeah, I've got two questions. It. Does it say, or do you know where they are normally? Where where they're found normally? Yeah, normally they're they're more tropical, and I think, and I don't remember if I read it in this or another article that uh, they are generally off the coast of like Mexico and into Central America. Okay. And I don't have that in front of me, unfortunately. Um, I do remember reading that they are generally found in more tropical waters. Gotcha. So I was just, I was trying to think and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't connect now because it's the wrong part of the ocean. But with the Fukushima uh, fallout and all the stuff that's kind of spilling out, I kind of had a thought that maybe it was pushing them towards pushing them east, but it sounds like they're more south and they've come north as opposed to west coming east. So, yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Admittedly limited understanding of this uh, Lovecraftian phenomenon. We don't, we don't have a tunicate yeah. expert here. There's no tunicate. <laughs> we had a poop expert. If only we had a tunicate expert. God, what, a, what, what kind of crappy podcast are we running here? We can't even afford a tunicate expert. <laughs> so that's my contribution. Just, just, just don't nobody cut themselves. You'll need a tunicate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> John, you had another one. Yeah. What was yours? I have one. Uh, it says here, woman forced to drown rabid raccoon with her bare hands. Oh, a jogger God, yes. in Maine named Rachel Borch was uh, out jogging in the woods, and there was a raccoon blocking her footpath up ahead, showing its teeth to her and looking generally pissed off. What followed was something straight out of a slapstick comedy. I knew instantly it had to be rabid, she told a Bangor newspaper. And before she knew it, the raccoon had attacked her, biting her thumb and clawing at her. The conclusion of the fight is this. Borsch grabbed the animal's head and plunged it into a mucky mud puddle near where the fight occurred, essentially drowning it with her bare hands. She described it like the event, the event like something out of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. She called her dad, and he bagged the animal and gave it to Animal Control. They tested it for rabies, and of course, it was confirmed. So she had to go to the doctor, get some shots. The end of the story is this. It was really just dumb luck, Borsch says. I have never killed an animal with my bare hands. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah! Also, <laughs> killed a, uh, getting a, drowning a creature with rabies, that's like the worst way to go <laughs> when you have rabies. You already don't want the water. Right. <laughs> wow i mean most people would just give up i mean it's it's sad for the raccoon but well honestly badass of the woman if i even see a raccoon on the side of the road i just give up <laughs> i just lay down just go back inside and yeah play it's just coming dragons. after me guys just let it happen roll your fight. d20 just- to see if you can uh drown it <laughs> well well, nope, it got me. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Crom gave this lady the the, the skill oh, and yeah, ability exactly. she take care of the situation. So, which is amazingly lucky because usually, you know, she should be pretty weak from the protein deficiency in general. <laughs> so she's a she's a vegan. She's a vegetarian. But, oh, so she's a vegetarian, but her last name is Borscht. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. 
which is beats, right? Shake my damn head. <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And, and I think that she, now she's required to eat meat yeah. because, I mean, as far as the cops know, I've never killed anything with my bare hands. <laughs> I like to think yeah. that the spirit of the raccoon now resides inside of her and yeah, she is going to be a raccoon woman. She, she had to eat its its ra- rabied heart. <laughs> Every time she wakes it's up, she goes heart. in the kitchen, all the cupboards are open. There's just crap everywhere. Like, oh, there's curse. <laughs> why must I clean everything before I eat it? <laughs> Mom, why are you wearing that mask? Shut up. Get Mom out of the trash. Get her out of the trash. <laughs> Mom, go to bed. We need more cat food yeah. for Mom. <laughs> Put some mothballs down around. Keep mom out. <laughs> mom, get. Get, mom. <laughs> and other woman raccoon jokes. <laughs> yep. All available here. Oh, All right. Man, I'll, uh, Flora, what, what do you got? Let's, 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 let's round it up. Let's round it up. Yeah, I'll do, a, I'll do the old monthly weird roundup for us. A few quick ones here. This one I call a boom with a view. Coming from Japan today, Japan is in constant conflict over whether to become more militarily robust, concerned increasingly with North Korea, even though its constitution requires a low profile, only self-defense. When the country's defense minister recently suggested placing females into combat roles, constitutional law professor Shigiaki Iojima strongly objected initiating the possibility that Japan's enemies might have bombs capable of blowing women's uniforms off, exposing their bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, it's been rumored, but I think it's just nerd legend. (laughs) Wouldn't expect that from the uh, country that brought us anime. Oh, well. (laughs) The Porky's Institute announced today a breakthrough. (laughs) 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 this one i call a fine cigarette get a six pack of those cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) from the national post harry kramer 76 owner of sparkles cleaning service in london ontario was alone in his suv recently and decided to light up a cigarette based on his 60 year old habit but was spotted by smoke-free ontario officers and cited for three violations Since his vehicle was registered to his business and the windows were up, the cab constituted an enclosed workplace. It took a long legal fight, but in May, the Provincial Offenses Court cut Kramer a break and dismissed the tickets. Probably with an I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Wow. That's uh, that's pretty aggressive. Yeah. Three tickets? Three violations uh, for, for smoking up in his own van. When they say smoke-free Ontario, they fucking mean it. That's right. That's right. And the last one, bearing their fangs. Poenari Castle, once a fortress of Vlad the Impaler in Romania, has new tenants. A mama bear and her cubs have traversed the almost 1,500 steps up and taken over the mountain castle. Apparently, the ursine interlopers aren't there for the history of the bloodthirsty ruler of Wallachia. They were lured by remnants of picnic baskets left by careless tourists. Hey, hey. <laughs> Officials have agreed to capture them and move them elsewhere, provided the bears don't run them through with spiked poles and drink of their blood. 
Hey, Bram Bram. Let's say we uh, eviscerate our enemies and watch them uh, <laughs> kick and dance on poles as they die. I don't know about that. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Where does the pulse start going in? Yo, okay. That's it. That was the worst. In the Rekatom. <laughs> right in the old 23 Skadoo. Boo Boo was the yeah. lamest. Our Yogi Bears are slowly turning in crust into Krusty the Clown, I think. <laughs> oh, the lament of a generation. All of our Yogi Bears are becoming Krusty Clowns. Oh, yeah. That's, that's Dylan's next song. Well, guys, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast, and we need to do these sorts of things far more often. So say it's true. Me. I got to say, thank you all very much for inviting us. I mean, we've been listening to y'all for, for a number of years, so it's it's exciting to uh, to be on the recording with y'all. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, a blast. Blurry Photos was one of Luke's one things early on in the Chromecast run, and it was yeah. the, the Cahokia episode, I think. Um, and we all started listening. So, yeah. Nice. Well, I'm, thank right. you so much for that. I, I love you guys. Like the stuff that you guys post on Twitter in particular, like I'm, I'm, I still enjoy uh, robot, robot E. Howard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell everybody one more time where they uh, should be going to find you guys. Sure. Well, they can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. Uh, as you pointed out, we're on Twitter at thecromcast. We also have a Facebook page that is uh, facebook.com slash thecromcast. Um, and uh, we're available to listen to on, uh, it's not iTunes anymore, is it? It's the Apple Podcasts or something like that. Oh, boy. Yeah, what? whatever that is. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, sh- yeah we're ruined that is yeah you can find us there uh we're on stitcher uh whatever podcast app you want to listen to us on we're probably there um so just uh look for the chromecast and then tell google no i actually did mean the chromecast not the chromecast no not the comcast cable company uh i want the chromecast pulp fiction robert e howard podcast yeah you are really between a rock and a hard place with brand identity there It's it's a great name and it's also a cursed name. Yeah, it really is. But in in true in true crom fashion it will make you stronger. The your, your struggle will only make you uh, more powerful. And that's C R O M C A S T. That's right. That's right. Anybody does doesn't know the spelling of crom. That's right. Dave, where can they find us? Uh you can find us online uh, at blurryphotos.org. You can also find us on God, what is it? Apple Podcast now? Like this, I just learned of this. It's not iTunes anymore. Yeah, this is a recent thing in the last couple of weeks. Oh, geez. Okay, well, it's there. Uh, you can also find us on Stitcher and wherever finer podcasts are, are, are shucked and or jived. Uh, but also, you can find us on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, blurry underscore photos. Um, we're not the only. YouTube. Uh, YouTube, yes. Uh, and, and you guys aren't the only ones that had a, a, a side podcast idea get out of hand. So don't forget to visit right. the lovely ladies at Candy Chat. Uh, oh, yeah, Candy Chat. <laughs> at Candy Chatters on Twitter or on uh, Facebook. And uh, as always, check out the Chicago Podcast Cooperative. Uh, I never get tired of saying it, so I'll do it again. A ragtag fugitive fleet of podcasts fleeing from the skin job empire. <laughs> I never get tired of hearing that. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just like to say skin job. Um, if, um, if we're not on your favorite, uh, podcast player, then let us know. We'll try yeah. to get on there. Yeah. We'll get that fixed. Uh, Cause that's what and we don't use. forget to check out audibletrial.com slash blurry photos. Get yourself a free audio book. I am, uh, listening to the hero with a thousand faces by Joseph Campbell Ooh. right now. So good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's hot and heavy already. And I'll bet One you you could in. find more than a few different editions of Robert E. Howard stories, uh, Robert E. Howard stories on there. So uh, check us, check that out yourself. If you're too busy to sit down and read a book, have someone read it to you. It's the future. That's an option. And you're not yeah. even an a-hole for wanting it. So you embrace your that. hands while you do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could make a pie. I don't know. I'm not here to tell <laughs> you how to recreate. <laughs> what I am here to tell you how to do is next time on Bullstone. American Medical Association announced today that no news is now medically the best news. What global warming? Exxon funded scientists say carbon emissions, not dipping dots, are the ice cream of the future. New study suggests that every hour you spend listening to a podcast is time that you could be spending writing that thesis, dissertation, or maybe that great American novel. Thousands of Pokemon Go players are beginning to descend upon Chicago, Illinois for their annual solstice sacrifice to their god Charizard by creating a wicker man made of Game Boy advances. Every dog has its play. We'll tell you how one theater taught a pair of good boy beagles to act. All these tunicate tingling stories and more next time on Fullstone.